You can forget a lot of things, Foster Care Nation, but never forget this. You're listening to Unparalleled Studios. I think now. Foster Care Nation. Listen up. This is Foster Care and Unparalleled Terminator. Strength for the powerless. Courage for the fearful. Hope and healing for wounded hearts. Hello and welcome back to Foster Care, an unparalleled journey with Jason. And no, Amanda, I see, I know it's getting rarer and rarer and somebody out there is thinking they must be going through a divorce or something. It's not that at all. We just are going through crazy life of foster parents, which means therapy appointments and doctor's appointments and you name it. And we have it. And so she is currently probably walking out of the therapist's office right now, getting ready to take a kid back to school and do all those great things. So we're going to be without her again this week. So I brought you an author, not an author that's written one book, but a whole bunch of books like I think 18 books. Mary Pusey is her name. And I'm just going to let her tell you about it because I don't have all the details. Mary, how are you doing today? <laughs> Good. Um, it's Marcy Pusey, which you said earlier. So I know you know it. <laughs> Since it's my website, we'll go with yeah, Marcy Pusey. I'm just Pusey. looking yes. at the screen and it actually says Marcy Pusey on it. I don't I know. know why. I know. <laughs> you said it earlier. I know you know it. And I'm like, oh, do we just, should I just be Mary for this conversation? I could, but then the website issue is, is you know, later then I don't want them to go to marypc.com. <laughs> <laughs> Amen to that. Yeah. In case anybody was wondering, I have had like 30 kids in my house and I forget my own children's names sometimes. <laughs> my biological children's name, when I look at them, I have to run through a list and, you know, especially the young ones because they're on the bottom of the list in that head. And so, yeah. Yeah, it happens all the time. So, all right. It's so all, we have Marcy Pusey. We're going to replace her with yes. Marcy today. <laughs> and how are you doing? Good, good. I'm doing well. And I am I thank you for reaching out to have me join you today. I, I think of this as a sacred space between you and your listeners. And I know that you're a gatekeeper to who you want to expose them to. And so I just, I'm very grateful and I appreciate it and I don't take it lightly. So thanks for having me. Oh, we're happy to have you here because I mean, really, honestly, I've had, I've only had very few people who tried to step in here that I went, huh? Like you're insane. (laughs) (laughs) Really? I think there was only one ever like that, but um, (laughs) all that aside, you know, our, our goal here is to hold space for people to be able to tell their stories and promote foster parents, promote adoptive families, promote the, the, the plight of the child who does not have that, that safe place to call home every day. And after having looked at who you are and what you do, I, I think you fit pretty squarely in that category. So there's no questions about that. Thank you. you. So you're an author of like 18 books. Are are they Mm -hmm. primarily all about foster care and or adoption? Do you, do you have multiple uh, genres that you work through? I do. I'm pretty genre diverse, which, you know, in publishing, they would say is an issue. Like they, they would, you know, generally from a success perspective, if you stick with one theme and one audience, you, you know, can do a lot better, but I don't write or publish that way. I, um, yeah, don't. So I have two, uh, adult nonfiction books for the foster adopt community. One is called reclaiming hope, overcoming the challenges of parenting foster and adopted children. That book was, uh, the first one. And it was really, it was like a cry into the darkness. It's like, anyone else think this is hard? Because I don't know about you, but when we began fostering, oh gosh, 14 years ago. Yeah, just about 14 years ago. Um, and I, I don't know that a ton has changed, though I, I think in some places it has. You know, when we walked into the training office, there were these beautifully blended families on posters running through fields of wildflowers and, you know, all the smiles. <laughs> and I was like, oh, it's so beautiful. And we're going to be that family. And then we were not that family. I mean, even to capture a picture like that took so many M&Ms and bribes. And, you know, it was just like this snapshot. But everything behind the photo was hard. And so um, 
I came to foster parenting first with backgrounds and degrees in social work and counseling. So I first had it from like an educational perspective around the need. And then I came to it as a mama saying, well, like, well, maybe we can be a home, not just having this educational understanding and advocating, but maybe we can actually act and be part of the movement. And so that's where the first book came from was like, whoa, this is hard. I don't feel like anyone told me it was this hard. And either I'm a horrible person, like either I'm a horrible human, or this is hard for other people too, and we just don't talk about it. So that first book is like, let's reclaim hope. And also, if anyone else thinks it's hard, let me know. So I feel less alone. And there was a resounding yes. Like I, it really opened up so much conversation for people to say, oh, you too? I think we were kind of living in our own silos with all this shame and doubt and, and regret in some places, just, and, and, and thinking we were the only ones. And so when I published that book, I was immediately invited to stages to foster agencies, to orphan care summits, to speak on this. And even social workers, you know, in that book on challenges, they're, they fall under, some of them, some of the challenges that we face on the journey. <laughs> I've had really great social workers, and I've had some that are burned out. Like their original vision is burned out under the weight of 100 files and all of the bureaucracy and I've even had social workers say, thank you for seeing us. Like, we're not trying to be part of the challenge, but thank you for acknowledging us and seeing us. And we want everyone on our caseload to read this book. Book one. Book two is um, Parenting Children of Trauma, The Foster Adoption Guide to Understanding Attachment Disorder. And that is my effort to bring an understanding around attachment disorder to the everyday person. When I wrote that book, Compassion fatigue, vicarious trauma, secondary trauma were only talked about in relation to social workers who see the kid maybe once a month for 20 minutes. And I was like, what about the people living with these kids? Like, why are we talking about what it looks like to be living with manifested trauma in our homes and to be raising it and to, you know, and so that book, um, yeah, is about like understanding the brain of our children, understanding why it's still important that what we do what we do, but also flipping some of the expectations, a lot of the expectations. What does love look like in this setting? Well, it actually looks really different, you know, than, than we might think in other places. Um, and then there's a whole bunch of resources and strategies that are kind of like upside down parenting in our culture. Yes. But are far more effective with the attachment, you know, the, the attachment dysfunction brain that just needs a different kind of support than we were taught or trained or even that is innately in us to give. So those two are specific. And then I have a children's picture book, Speranza's Sweater, that follows the journey of a child from removal from her home through adoption. And that is, that book really, really struck a chord. Um, and I'll let people just go look at that one. But again, I kind of brought my therapeutic background to it, but also how do we give kids an experience? How do we give kids an opportunity to see themselves in a story and to see themselves um, in a way that actually develops resilience? I have a TEDx talk where I talk about the power of story on the brain and specifically for children. And um, we'll see if we come back to children and resilience and my thoughts on that. But <laughs> this book gives kids an opportunity both to see themselves reflected in a story, but also their classmates their other family members gives them uh, some understanding around what that experience is like. And then I mentioned a young adult novel called Forever Home. So that's actually a fictionalized story, but I play with this idea that um, what if it was easier in our society to um, try to get kids, it's called Forever Homes because we're trying to get kids into homes forever. But what happens if we can't find homes? What makes the most sense societally? What makes the most sense for a budget? Um, what do we do with these kids who need homes? And so I play with that through a young adult dystopian lens there. So those are some of the books that have a focus on foster adopt in addition to the others, which are different topics. Well, Marcy, if we just dive into those topics right there, we've got about 14 yeah. hours of content to, uh, <laughs> <laughs> because you started off with the, am I crazy? Am I doing this? Right? Uh -huh. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to raise my hands and say, preach. I know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's, that's, you know, we, we've walked through some of that. 
you know, the first time a kid with ODD came into our house, I'm just going to say, okay, I was raised by a police officer. The guy who back, back in the eighties, when there was, there was no nonsense in a lot of the police, he was actually, he was a police officer in the seventies. So back when there was no nonsense, you didn't argue with the cops more than once. After that, you just learned to, to go ahead and do the, do the things they tell you to do. It's the best thing to do. And as a child of one of those police officers, I learned it was mm-hmm. best to do what he told me to do. He told you. And the first time I had a kid who every time you said yes, he said no. If you said maybe, he said never. If you that was I was like, Oh, dear God, what do you do with this? All right, let's let's place all these strategies I learned from my dad into yeah. play. And yeah. guess what? That whole upside down parenting you mentioned, whew, I wish I would have known that before I started that one. I I know. And I mean, if we, yes, it's upside down parenting because their brains are wired differently as a result of the trauma they've experienced. So we actually need to approach them with an understanding of that wiring, which is the book Parenting Children of Trauma. The problem is that we've been raised in a culture that really narrowly defines what a good parent looks like. And what good mothers look like, what good fathers look like. And a lot of the evidence for whether we are good is the behavior of our kids. So we end up trying to do a lot of behavior management so that they appropriately reflect the value of our parenting and none of it works. And so not only are we sort of trying to figure out what is effective with these kids, but we're doing that surrounded by messages that say, you're not doing enough, your love must be broken, or you don't love enough, or you were the wrong person for this job. We've got that internally, because we've heard it for so long now that we've got internal messaging that that says those things. But then there's actually people in the outer world who will also say those things, or will who ask questions that are leading questions, you know, that kind of go a direction like, no, I actually do love all of my kids equally, as far as like, love goes, but do I have to treat them differently? Are you going to see differences there because of how they're uniquely wired? Yes. But people will look at that and go, oh, see, see, you love that kid more than that kid because what I can see with my eye, you know? And so you were constantly like trying to raise these kids to be healthy and whole and healed. We're trying to protect the safety in our homes. We're trying to like create a culture in our homes of health and community. But then we've got this outer world idea of how it should look constantly coming against us. We've got our inner messaging coming against us and it, it can seriously lead to, I mean, diagnosable mental health challenges as a parent trying to do all of those things and feeling so isolated at the same time and not knowing that there's resources or community or other people like you're gathering here, Jason, this community of people who can come and talk about it and be real and say like, no, I am a good parent. It looks different because of this. And here's a strategy you can try. Let me know which ones you've tried and how they've worked and screw what the rest of the world thinks about it. Cause I need to be healthy and whole and I need my kids to be healthy and whole. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned that. That's, I'll just go ahead and throw this out here because at this point, I don't know exactly when you guys hear this, where this will be in our journey, but that's one of the things Amanda and I are looking at at creating a community where, where foster parents can come together and share some of these things because my gosh, if somebody had shared this stuff with me when I started, my journey would have been so much smoother, so much less rocky. And it just, uh, to be honest, when we were trained, you know, what, probably 13, 14 years ago when we started this journey, I mean, they mentioned trauma, like kids have, you know, a lot of kids have some, some traumatic situations, but the, the, the knowledge wasn't there and it certainly wasn't talked about in this, in this lens. And now that we know what we know, if we can share that with others, especially those of us who have walked some hard roads, sharing that, that knowledge with people who are, who are on the front end of that journey can make their so much better, not just better for them, but for the kids who come into their care as well. Yeah. 100%. And the thing is, not only did we not know, but really, neither did our social workers. Neither does the government who's trying to help us raise kids. Neither do the therapists who are sitting with our kids in offices doing talk therapy. That's the least effective kind of therapy for anyone who is trying to recover from trauma. So we've been put into a situation surrounded by a lot of well-meaning, beautiful, but ignorant people. 
who have authority and who make big decisions. And again, that messaging, we, we come into it with all of that and suddenly we're just completely blindsided. I mean, I came into parenting foster kids as a social worker who'd been working as a behavior analyst for quite a while um, and, and who thought like, I was pretty informed <laughs> and I was still totally blindsided by the reality of raising these kids. And I thought if I'm blindsided and I'm coming in with all this education and experience, I had worked for CPS um, as an intern. I had worked in group homes, foster agencies. Like I, I had a lot of experience. I thought, what about those people who are just like, this have beautiful souls and are like, I have no experience, but I have a heart and a home and I want to offer it. Like, wow, they must really be upside down. And then we don't want to talk about shameful things, right? So because it brings about, I, I would say, a level of shame to our experience in the messages we're hearing about ourselves, um, man, that causes us actually to pull away from community. Like we don't want to feel exposed or vulnerable. We don't want people to know that we might be failures and we maybe made a mistake and maybe we're not good enough for this. And so we end up like further isolating, which is the exact opposite of what we need. So yeah, put that community together. Um, I've got a little one that's not like super active, but I've got places where I invite people on Facebook to come and share as they need to. It's so important for us to both be such strong advocates in our own souls first, like first the messaging that we hear ourselves giving to us and to our family. But then there's so much education that we have to do with, with the social workers, with the systems, the agencies, the government around us. And I know as I say that, I can imagine you're like, I am exhausted. Like, I, I can't train anyone to do this better. <laughs> and no, y you probably can't. Like, you know, but some of us who are a little further along who've recovered some of our energy, like, that's what we're working on. You know, some of you might be called to tell your story or to get on a stage or to just model it in your home. There's different ways that we can advocate. Um, if you're listening and you're thinking about it, thinking about fostering or adopting, you know, then already do all this good research and support families who are doing it and talk with them. And, and there's a lot of ways we can participate in bringing good education to this whole system. And then, and then, and then we just set ourselves up for a much better experience. Like you said, Jason, same with me. If I had known some of these things at the beginning, I would have had such a different experience. And so why not help other people start where we wish we could have? Marcy, if I didn't know any better, I'd think you were suggesting that the government does not know the best practices to raise kids on a day-to-day -day basis. That would be an accurate <laughs> interpretation. Have you ever been down to the license office and got your car registered? I mean, come on, you see how effective they are there. <laughs> yeah. And if anybody works there, I'm sorry, I don't mean, mean to be mean to you. It's it's just the license office in my area that's terribly slow and <laughs> I mean, here's the reality about government, right? Like, historically, historically, the the origins of foster care and adoption were really done within a church setting. People of faith who saw a need and, and began to meet it. And with time, that became institutionalized. And it shifted from, like, individuals with heart to a government. And the need grew so much, right? Like, there's a lot of reasons that happened that are both positive and unfortunate. But the reality is a, a, a bureaucratic governmental system will never be able to raise children in a healthy way. They are doing the best they can with what they've got. But we're missing the heart. And I get it. Like, I don't, I'm not telling you I have a quick fix. Other than we educate ourselves, we educate each other, we create community, and we just do a better job, right? And and they have to, like, figure it out and adjust. But we just have to be responsible with our little playground, <laughs> you know? <laughs> you know, you mentioned some of the therapy stuff. And, you know, yeah. no governmental agency will ever be sitting there walking down the road after having seen a couple of horses and watching your kid connect with that and go, holy crap, I just saw something amazing. Wait. I, I know what, what, what equine assisted therapy is, right? I wonder if that's in my area. And so a quick, one quick Google search later, I found out that literally three miles down the highway, I hang a left and go about two or three miles up that road. And there's a place there that does equine assisted psychotherapy. And for my one kid, we, we have been doing some, some of this for the last several weeks and oh my gosh, 
I mean, is that is not something that I've looked at my wife quite a few times. I'm like, have you not seen the difference in turtle over the last few weeks? Like yeah. it's, it's amazing what it's done for him because it's a place where he connects. Now he's been in play therapy for quite a while and that had some, some real beneficial yeah. effects to begin with. I'm not mad at that therapist. She does a great job. We still work with her, but yeah. this particular program it's it's something that's connecting somewhere different in his yep. soul. Yep. And it's yep. like, wow, this is what he needed to find. And yes. so yes. no government agency is going to have those experiences and those moments and pull that one out of their hat to be able to go, I think this is the right thing for him. That's our job. No. You know, that's that's it. That's yes. why we're here, why we are the boots on the ground, so to speak. Yeah. You know, and 100%. sometimes they're on the ground, and right? Sometimes they're knocking off, the, yeah. off the ground. Yeah. But. yeah. And we can, we could spend a lot of energy being angry at the system. And don't get me wrong, there are moments where that fire flares up, and I'm like, I cannot even. <laughs> but, but the reality is, like to your point, they're they're so limited in what they're able to understand. They don't get that life experience. That's why I was so bothered when I wrote my first book that all I could find in any of the literature was secondary trauma and compassion fatigue related to social workers. Absolutely, that's important. That's a real thing. I'm not discrediting that they need support there. There was nothing on the actual people living day to day to day to day with these kids. I thought if they're if they're dealing with secondary trauma, imagine the people raising the kids, and that's not even secondary anymore. That becomes primary because depending on the needs of your child, sometimes the way they manifest their own trauma experiences, even pre-verbal in the womb, like doesn't, the way that comes out can recreate trauma in the environment around them. And we experience it from a primary position. There is no conversation about that anywhere. I couldn't find it. So it's in my book. And I'm like, so now there is because I just thought, no, you know, but they don't know. They don't know because they're not the ones in the home doing it. And I think that's one of the kind of accidental um, benefits of, of my unique intersection with foster care first as a social worker slash person in that that world who then became a parent. So I got to bring together both and go, wow, of course they don't. I was never taught this as a social worker. And wow, this is what it actually feels like as a parent. And so how can I bridge those two, both to become now an educator for the social workers, but also with compassion? They're just not taught. And I know because I went to school with them, that they have beautiful hearts for going into that profession. And then they get in there and it's just office and red tape and files and bureaucracy. And they can't even do or feel the impact of the thing they went in to do, right? And so there's just all this disconnect. And so like you said, boots on the ground, it's on us to connect with each other because community is one of the quickest ways to buoy us up. Is it like a buoy? Like hang on to the buoy of community because there's a resilience there. And there's, it also speaks to our own trauma and survival brain. When we have community and we feel like we're not alone, that's a super healing agent. We need that. And so even just knowing people are in your corner can give us a kind of energy to do today and do the next minute and do the next five minutes. Um, yeah, so it comes down to it, to us. And there, there's sacrifices involved, right? Like the things that my kids needed, they would not fund, mm-hmm. right? It wasn't covered by their health care. It wasn't covered by any support funds they had. And so we had to make decisions at times like, are we going to spend this a lot of extra money to get the care that he actually needs, even though all they want to cover is like traditional talk therapy with whoever's in the government office, right? And so just being willing to make those decisions knowing when it's time to and knowing when it's not, right? I, I want to be careful too that I don't say, and therefore, if you don't spend all the extra money, on da, 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 then you're not the good parent. No, absolutely not. Everyone has to make their own decisions. But that's what it comes down to, is making our decisions, experiencing the frustration as it comes up with the governmental part of it. But then just, yeah, at some point we have to let go of, of all of that and just do what's right for our family right in front of us. Yeah, you mentioned, you know, bringing our own personal traumas and you know, I, if you just go back over the last what it's been eight years now i lost my dad yeah. he i lost him to nasty uh cancer um shortly after that my wife and i we we experienced child loss of our oldest daughter who, who was really sick and, and she lost her battle with that disease uh then then all those troubles and struggles that, that come with kids coming in and out of your home we've dealt with a lot of stuff yeah. in our personal family um, I work yeah. a job where if they could get me there 70 hours a week, uh, they would. 
I, I fight to keep it down to like 55 hours a week. And, and that's a struggle to just work that many hours on top of producing a podcast and, and all the other yeah. things we yeah. do on top of that, you know, all of our personal healthcare stuff. Cause you know, um, as we're recording this, I'm just a few days away from going in for, for a, a test to, to determine whether or not I have some, uh, some, well, I know I have some stuff going on. My medical history is really weird. I've got a lot of really weird stuff and, and they're going to do a mm. spinal tap and test for some craziness. And, and, uh, you know, mm. it may or may not end up being something like MS or God knows what all. So all that's going on as, you know, yeah. as, as you're dealing with this trauma and this stress of today and you have yesterday and you have a few years ago and a few years before that, and not to mention all the stuff that comes out of our own childhood. And you mentioned that internal voice, right? I mean, who yeah. wrote that internal voice? Somebody somewhere in your life yeah. told yeah. you that you're not good enough. And that's the voice that you hear over and over in the back of your head. And so we're dealing with all these things at the same time, trying to take this kid from a, from a spot that's probably more difficult than the place you're in but you're trying to buoy them up and help them out and, and hold them above the noise. And at yeah. some point the weight becomes too much if you don't have some people around to help you stand. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's why we think that well, we've talked about this, this community and figuring out how to do that. And I've had a great example of this because on most podcast episodes, at some point I'll mention the dad's group that I'm in. It's, it's called the dad edge Alliance. If anybody's interested, any guys out there, I highly recommend it. I'm part of the leadership team now, but I joined as one of the, uh, one of the original members to that. And it's just been an amazing place for guys. And I've seen men come in grown men, um, law enforcement officers, um, from the local to the federal level. I've seen cooks and chefs and, and truck drivers and you name it. Every, every side of the world come in and be open and vulnerable and talk about addictions, whether it's drug and alcohol, pornography, talk about marriage problems, talk about all the things they struggle with on a regular basis, their own personal abuse as a child, and, and talk through these things and how it affects their relationships with their wives and their kids and their whole And it's, it's a great example of exactly what we need in this place. And so I know the guy who created this group. I know him very well. He lives 20 miles down the road. Mind you, we have international members, but he lives 20 miles down the road. And I'm like, Larry, buddy, we're going to talk about this because I think we need to create this for, for some foster parents, because this is, we all have these big struggles and we don't talk enough with other people about, about these things. As a matter of fact, the whole vulnerability thing is so difficult here because of the fear of being yes. judged. Yes. You know, if, if anybody's had a reactive attachment kid, you can find out real fast that they look really normal to most people in society. They don't look that way when they're in your home, when you're the primary caregiver, it looks a whole lot different. And the whole world thinks you must be crazy. This kid is an angel. He's that's a great kid. You know, he's great. She's wonderful. And you're like, no, 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 no. You don't understand what, what we dealt with this last week. Like the crazy stuff we dealt with, you know, we talked with, I believe it was Cheryl Ruggio several, several months back and, um, probably been a year or so since we aired her episode and she talked about, you know, they, they adopted two girls and the one girl was reactive attachment. She attempted to kill her sister numerous times, you know, using methods like shoving her into a burning fireplace, trying to hold her under the pool and under the water and like murder attempts really. And nobody else sees it. And it's so hard for people to hear this and look at this cute little girl and be like, Oh no, she would never do like, that. They can't, they can't wrap their brains around it. And you begin to feel like you are the crazy one and nobody else can see it. Yeah, it's so real. And it's, it's their wiring. As a result of that trauma, their actual brain rewires to adjust around some new beliefs. And those new beliefs are that people who love us and connect with us, who to where we could have some emotional intimacy, are going to kill us. And some of that is because of that original wound, whatever it was, whether it was like just separation at birth from a birth mother and a birth father, or an act like a lot of our foster kids were removed from homes because of things that were happening there that they were, you know, not <laughs> to be exposed to, but were. That brain then takes that original parent's I'm going to say failure, although it's not always a failure. You know, sometimes it's that good mom saying, I can't care for this child and I'm giving it to a new family who can. But the brain interprets it as an original failure or an original wounding. 
and says, oh, therefore everyone that should be in that position is actually going to betray me and, and harm me. And therefore, everyone who's not in that position is really safe. So it's this flipped (laughs) neurological understanding of safety. The people that are actually safe are perceived as dangerous because there's been some precedence, right? And the people who really, we say stranger danger, those feel sometimes like the safest people to them because there's no emotional connection, there's no expectation. And so that's what you're saying. People outside of our house will experience this child who comes up and is like the most friendly kid, (laughs) loving. They're the ones that are going to like, I've never met you, but I'm going to sit on your lap and snuggle with you and say, I love you and stroke your hair. And the adult is like soaking up this cuddly child and going, there's no way in the world that this is a hard kid. Like, I want every kid to be like this one, you know, or they're super respectful to, to the stranger and can sometimes even communicate at an adult level and they have manners and everyone's like, wow, this is crazy. Well, that is the survival mechanism of that child. We can't see inside their head, right? Like if they were in a wheelchair, everyone would say, oh, I see that there is a need. There's something going on with legs or the spine or whatever, and there's a need for a wheelchair. And there's a level of understanding. Nobody would expect that child to get up and walk, especially if you just loved them better, right? Which is often the message. If you just love that kid better, they'll stop being crazy at home. No, that child is in an invisible wheelchair where their brain has been rewired to perceive that your attempts at connection are going to kill them. And that that stranger's attempt at not connection, but like outer world relationship is the safest place they can be. And so that's what we're dealing with. We just can't see it. It's all this invisible injury. And even as parents, we don't see it. Like if we don't have that awareness, we have the same, but I love you. Why aren't you standing up and walking? (laughs) Right? But we would never expect that that of ourselves or of anyone else if we could see the disability. But what that means is we have to understand, oh, my attempts at connection trigger their fight or flight because of that trauma. So then how do we address that? How do we then begin to, um, in the meantime, love in such a way that doesn't trigger the fight or flight, which is what the world thinks looks upside down. It sometimes means having a really flat affect with them if they've been scraped their knee right? If you come to a kid who scraped their knee and you're like, oh my gosh, are you okay? Let me hug you. That can trigger their fight or flight. Whereas if you go, okay, let's take care of that. Let's put a bandaid on it. Let's make sure there's no bleeding. Man, that kid gets to feel safe and cared for, but they're not triggered. But the rest of the world is like, why aren't you looking and seeming more compassionate and caring and emotionally connected to this injury? And you're like, because that triggers them. So pulling that back again, there's just all of this invisible inner work that's happening in their brain that we can't see that is reactive attachment disorder or disinhibited social engagement disorders. And so then we need the kinds of therapy, the kinds of horse therapy support, which activates really important things in the brainstem which is where all of that is being housed, right? So I know I just kind of geeked out and went a little bit like brain sciencey on you, but this is the kind of stuff that we were not taught. So I went into parenting my kids with like, my love is going to heal them. Yeah. Or, you know, like I- I'm going to, my love is going to, because they've never had unconditional love and now they're going to have it and they're going to be healed. And what happened was they didn't heal, <laughs> which then made me feel like my love must be broken because, you know, we're taught that love heals. Just love more, sacrifice more, give more, be more, and then they should get better. But if we don't understand the trauma and trauma recovery and what their brains are perceiving and the world they experience with us, we're going to keep triggering them. They're going to keep triggering us and the whole world is going to judge us for it. Marcy, I'm I'm a little bit angry with you that you didn't tell me all of this 13 (laughs) years ago. (laughs) I I was drowning in it at the same time, but here we are. Yeah. Yeah, and that's like I said. Like I said, that's why why we want to put out a podcast like this. That's why we want to create a community because these are the things that man, as as it's become more well known, as somebody other than just the the academic elite are beginning to look at this, and we yeah. can go, oh yeah. wait, wait, that this looks like my house. That sounds familiar. Yes. You know, we, yes. we can we can support one another through that. It's. Because this one is, is is a difficult journey for sure. We there's no answer yeah. to how how to to really just go do this right that's handed to you when you first just decide to help kids. Nope. No, we really just go in it like beautiful souls. Everyone, I think. I mean, maybe there's some random exceptions, but who've made a decision to foster or adopt, 
had really beautiful motives for it and just weren't equipped to understand what love looks like. I, that's something I talk about is what, how do we reframe love then? Right. I come, I'm a Christian a person of faith and I was taught that, you know, God's love is unconditional and his love heals. And so I knew his love wasn't broken and I knew my kids weren't healing. So the conduit is the problem. And I just kept giving and giving to the point where I did experience, um, complex PTSD, which is also something that wasn't talked about. Um, complex PTSD being that you've been exposed to a kind of trauma in an ongoing way and you develop very similar or the same symptoms to post-traumatic stress disorder, but it's called complex because it's not that like I went to war, I had this major life thing or 9-11, I wasn't there at 9-11. It's this ongoing exposure. Ended up being diagnosed with that, needing to be medicated. I slept for like a year and a half and I just kept pouring. Like, I am the problem. I'm the problem. And one day I, I heard, I mean, yeah, like I, I heard or experienced a new idea in my head. I believe God was speaking to me because, you know, in the Bible, I understand that he died like to save us. So like love looks like dying. And that's kind of what I'm felt like I was taught inside the faith community too, right? Is like lo- like sacrificial love means laying down your life for somebody else. And so I laid, I laid, I laid, I laid, and I was dying, like at a soul level, at a mental health level. It was beginning to impa- impact my physical ability to function. And I just thought that's still what you do. That's what the good people do. And then I had this, I heard, Marcy, the reason that my death is love is because that's what you needed. But your kids do not need a dead mother. Dying as a mother is not love. And it was like this epiphany, like, what? There's other ways to love without sacrificing my soul and my mental health and my physical body as a demonstration of love. And it changed everything. I mean, there were were multiple pivot points on my journey, but that epiphany allowed me to step back back from this idea that I needed to exhaust myself on every level in the name of love to a place of really pausing to consider, okay, well, if they don't need a dead mom, then what does love look like? If that's not loving to die, <laughs> um, what is loving? And, and that's where I began to understand their brain and to set some new expectations. You know what was loving? Was having a healthy boundary around my mental health and my energy. It meant telling one child who took a lot of our energy in my head right now. I'm like, how much do I go into why? Like they can get addicted to the adrenaline of the chaos they create. And so he would need a hit, Mm -hmm. right? And so he'd come to us and we'd, we'd respond and give him that hit by escalating and he'd get that adrenaline rush. And so love looked like I'm not giving you that adrenaline rush anymore. Now I understand the dynamic of your brain and how I've looped into it. And now I'm going to have a healthy boundary. And I'm going to say, I'm going to set a timer and say, you have 20 minutes to whatever this is going to look like, this conversation, this interaction. And when that timer goes off, I'm going to return to the rest of the people in the house. And you can figure yourself out. And when you can come to some emotionally regulated place, you're welcome to reenter the family <laughs> circle. You know, that wasn't it before. I'd get pulled into hours and hours of this thing. And the other kids would miss out. And my soul is draining. So that's just one example of how I was able to shift from I'm supposed to give everything to you at the expense of my own health, but also everyone else. And instead, okay, wow, actually having a really healthy boundary around my energy, my time, my capacity is a way of loving you. Because then I get to show up for you in that time better. <laughs> and I get to continue to be available to everyone else. But it took that realization that love does not have to look the one particular way that we've been taught that it looks. And even outside of the church, there is an idea, right? That love will heal. If you love that kid enough, they should begin to be different. And if they're not, then that's probably you. You're doing something wrong. (laughs) And it's not. It's not that. We need to understand how they're wired. We need to protect our own health and then let that look different than it's looked historically. Marcy, I'm looking around my house trying to find out where you hid the cameras up here too. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. yeah it's 
it, it's a story that, that not only, you know, Amanda and I know well, but I'm certain many other listeners know that story very, very well as to what that looks like. Because, man, you come into this with the best of intentions and, Absolutely. oh, and then you get beat down like a dog, you know, through the process. Yeah. And all of society wants to point a finger at you because I remember that one case that I saw something in the news about when I was a kid. I think it was in Kentucky, maybe, where one uh, one particular gal had like like twenty foster kids locked up in dog cages in a single wide trailer or something crazy like that. And that's a story that that people will will revert to. Either you are this amazing person who can yes. just yes. work miracles, and if that's not happening, you must yeah. be doing this for the money. Yes. <laughs> Even my grown-up kids say that now. I told you before we started that they are now young adults and they're on their own journey, but they have diagnoses that are untreated. And I have had to maintain an ongoing healthy boundary around those relationships. So I love them. It looks different than, than they think it should. It looks different than some others might think it should, but I know it's the loving thing. You know, for example, I don't follow them on social media. That was a very unhealthy place for me to be, partly because sometimes they would get triggered and post things about me in a way that triggered me, and I just didn't need that. And also, they're just living their lives, and they don't need me around judging it or judging myself or whatever. <laughs> like, But to them, me not following them on social media communicated, you hate us because love looks like following us on social media and watching everything we do. And I've been able to say, actually, no, I can, I can love you and you can have my phone number and my Marco Polo and my email address and you know how to reach me. And if you're reaching me in a respectful way, I'll engage it. <laughs> and if you're not, I won't. Again, so countercultural, but they're on their own journeys and I'm, I'm watching that and letting it be. <laughs> I'm trying to remember where I was going with that now. I got a little deep, de uh, de what? I lived in Germany for a long time. I lost some of like our idioms that we use. I don't know why that happened, but I'll blend them. I'll just totally mix them up. <laughs> so I should have said that at the beginning, because if anyone's listening going like, why can't she get any of these right? That is why. I was in Germany 10 years. I spoke English a lot of the time, so I really don't know why it impacted my <laughs> idioms, but all the same. Um, yeah, so they're grownups now, and I'm still having to practice those healthy boundaries, and it still just looks different to people, but man... Am I a healthier person for it? You know, I, yeah, hundred percent healthier. Okay. But I wanted to step back real quick and ask you a question. So you're, you're saying like, man, where was this 14 years ago? But you've been doing it now for a while. How do you, cause earlier you explained some things that I'm like, yeah, that sounds exhausting. And we all are, we all are exhausted. Mm -hmm. Like it is how, do, like what gets you up every morning? Like what's been, what's been the ways that you've supported yourself or you and your wife have supported yourselves in order to keep functioning in the midst of like the loss of your dad, your own health concerns, the loss of your daughter. I'm so sorry. Like those are big, those on their own individually <laughs> need support. Right. But then you're also raising these kids and trying to upside down parent and all the things like, yeah, I'm curious for you. How have you done that? Well, as we went through some of those earlier traumas as I lost my dad and then our daughter, um, I coped in a really healthy way. Um, it was called whiskey. And so when, when I hear people talk about addiction, I have a lot more, um, a lot more mercy around that because I, I was, yeah. ne I've never messed with, with drugs at all. My dad was a cop. Um, I knew better. He, he would, you know, he'd, uh, he brought me into this world. He could take me out, make another one just like me. <laughs> and he was pretty serious about that. So I never messed with that stuff. Thank God. But, but whiskey was my coping mechanism. And about the time that got to be fairly problematic in my life. Uh, that's when I found the, the dad's community that I talked about. Um, that's when I found that as I was trying to find my way out of that. And as a result of that, um, it's been, what is it? We are almost at five and a half years. I'm, I'm looking at the, the date here. We're almost at five and a half years since the last drink because eventually I said, I can't do this anymore. You know, I didn't know what I could do how I would deal with it, but I knew that I couldn't do it anymore. And that was where I was, where actually it was where the dad's group that I'm a part of began to create this, this community that was so impactful for me and has changed so much of my life. And, and I know you, you mentioned your own faith journey and, and I grew up in a church that was a very fundamentalist, um, very conservative church. And, um, I, I hesitate to call it a cult because, well, my mom still goes there and she gets angry when I say that. So I won't call it that anymore. <laughs> Um, but, but it was, it was not a, a place where I found any healthy spirituality. How about that? 
Mm-hmm. And um, and as part of my journey through this uh, this particular dad's group, I've run across a couple of real men of faith there who who have helped me with that mm-hmm. struggle. And um, mm-hmm. you know, um, if you listen to to the Dad Edge podcast at all, you'll hear on a lot of the uh, he has a lot of Q and A episodes. I think usually at least one a week. And there's a guy on there who, who does it with him. His name is Joe Bailey, and Joe is um, what I could only describe as a man of God. Like this, this dude has been a godsend to me to help me find a healthier place in my own spirituality. And as part of one of the projects that we were working on, he he uh, he helped a bunch a group of men develop our our own personal spiritual statement, like our our spiritual I'm sorry spiritual purpose statement. And for me, it, it's um, I actually have it on my computer desktop now because it's it's that impactful. And it's it's this is as an imager of God, I am a father to the fatherless, a, and a protector of His most vulnerable children. I help chaos find order as an example of a God who calls us from the world through grace into a love we don't deserve. And as I see that every day. Because I get up in the morning, this computer sits here, and I'm reminded of the size of that, of that calling, and I have a reason to be here. I have a job to do. God put me on this earth for a reason, and part of that is is a good size part of that is helping kids, and if that looks like creating a community where foster parents can come together, can can have those have their own purpose statements, something like that, they can come in and really help children learn how to love again, you know, learn how to live in a safe place. Like that's a huge, huge job he's given me. So, and I've got all the reason in the world to get up. And yes, the 60 plus hour work weeks suck. Dealing with all the diagnoses sucks. Um, dealing with the health stuff, because part of what I deal with is a lot of chronic fatigue. Like I'm exhausted when I wake up. Um, and, and that's usually when I'm getting ready to go spend 12 hours at work before I come home and, and deal with kids who have problems. And, and I, all this is, is so difficult to do that if I don't have a big purpose out in front of me, if there's not a real reason why I'm doing this, I don't know if there's a reason at all to hang out in this, on this old earth because I couldn't handle it if I didn't have a good reason to do it. And that's what has really been one of the driving forces for me is building building a real purpose that the that's a legacy that'll last long after I'm gone. And I, I'm constantly reminded that a hundred years from today, this world will be different because I existed. It will. And I get to choose how it will be different. So that that's really that that's been the driving factor and what's changed in me as to to why I do what I do. Because I can't see any other reason to to live in this old world with it without having something big ahead of me like that. That is so, so beautiful. I'm like (laughs) wiping the tears stuck in my (laughs) eyes. Like your statement is so profound. And I think you touched on the heart of why all of us can get up every morning and do it again. And that's why I named my first book, reclaiming hope, reclaiming it's there it's never left. The hope is there available to us. And I hear your hope in this statement. And hope is like like a sure expectation of what's coming, right? Sometimes we think of it as a bit foofy. Like it's just something I wish for. We, we'll, we'll use those synonymously, hope and wish, but it's not. Hope is um, being sure of what you want and having an expectation of it. And I hear that in, in your purpose. And I I think that's what we all need to come back to. That's how we can like stake our claim in the ground of hope again, is this is bigger than me. This is, this is about a hundred years from now. Like you said, this is about impact and change. And that is such an empowering. Well, it is, it is the power behind why we can get up each morning is this belief that even as I make mistakes, even as I deal with all of the life outside of fostering and adopting, but also the consequence of fostering and adopting, um, I can take the next minute because this is my purpose. And when we lose sight of purpose, we become aimless. We do think we've lost hope. It feels helpless and hopeless. And all of that actually puts our own brains in a state of freeze. You know, we talk about fight, flight, or freeze. And freeze is actually where trauma develops and gets stuck. You know, we can experience trauma with a flight response and with a 
fight for <laughs> fight and fright, <laughs> but the freeze, that helplessness and that hopelessness begins to store away our experiences as unprocessed trauma. And that begins to impact us uniquely. And so the more that we can keep our eyes on the purpose behind why we're doing it, the more we're going to also steer our own brains clear of storing new unprocessed traumas, right? And being able to do the next thing. Sometimes we look at the whole mountain. Like I remember just going like, my kid is eight. I need to get them to 18. How am I going to get them to 18? (laughs) (laughs) Like I can't even get through today. How will I get through 18 more years of today's? Mm, But like I had to just come back to, to, to this moment, you know, or they're at school. So when they come home today, like, am I prepared for that next moment? And knowing too that when I made mistakes, that was part of the journey. I'm modeling things. I got to model so many times how to apologize (laughs) and ask forgiveness and just be a human and demonstrate that humans get to also experience connection and love in safe places that you don't have to show up perfect. I think that's a a message we give ourselves too. Like if I mess this parenting thing up, I'm going to mess them up. I need to be perfect. Nobody can relate to perfect. The message then to those kids is like, well, I know that I'm not perfect. So therefore, I'm always not good enough. And I'll never deserve love and affection and connection versus like a home where those things are experienced in the midst of the messes and the start overs and the try agains. The more we get to model humanity and like what love and connection looks like among real life humans. So I love that you touched on that. And then I love community. You started with I I had a safe place with other humans who could stand in my corner and witness. I talk about like silent or compassionate companions, compassionate witnesses to our story. When someone will just sit with you in your story and not give advice, not give feedback, but just witness it compassionately. That is an incredibly healing experience to our brains as well as to like what we actually feel. Brain geek real quick. Um, Trauma is formed as a result of our uh, amygdala, our brain, like perceiving a threat to our survival. But when we hear that, we often think like physical survival, you know, and we have threats to physical survival (laughs) raising our kids sometimes. (laughs) But what we don't realize is that a threat to our survival is also about our identity and our belonging. It's kind of this invisible threat, right? So then we don't understand why we're feeling traumatized when I'm physically safe. And it's because your your brain is not actually experiencing safety um, if your sense of identity and your sense of belonging is is attacked. And so the the anecdote to a threat to our sense of safety as it relates to belonging and identity is community. People coming alongside and saying, you belong, you have a place here, we see you, and you're accepted just as you are. Think, too, of the pandemic, right? Like, what did we do? We told everyone to isolate. We told everyone that their existence caused a threat to the the physical survival of other human beings around them. Therefore, do not be around other humans, which at a, like, rudimentary level in our systems told us that we were all going to die. I mean, we don't talk about that, but that is what our brains perceived with that message. Isolate, break free from the herd. You're going to kill everybody if you disobey this. And um, so you need to stay alone. And that to our brains says, then you're going to die. Our brains believe that community is what keeps us alive healthy community. So even that, like, uh, even if you're not fostering or adopting, you've been through a pandemic where the messaging for how to help and love was kill yourself <laughs> by isolating. And so you saw all around the world how people were forming community anyway, right? It, it became very virtual or people were on their balconies singing and everyone would get out of their balconies and they created this community because we need it. We, our survival mechanisms were engaged. So Backing away from the brain geek, coming back to what you said, without even knowing these things, your own survival found it. And I think that's something that's so helpful for us. Like we've both said, man, I wish we'd known this 14 years ago. And yet how beautiful that our survival mechanisms had enough resilience to make a way 
even if it was the wrong way for a while, you were like, it was whiskey for a while. Yeah, guess what? That was what your resilience had available. That Those were the tools you had available to what you knew. And then you built onto that resilience with other kinds of support and you found healthier ways and your toolbox grew to include healthier forms of surviving. But at first, that's all you had. That's that's what was available to you. And how cool that like our, our systems are so bent towards healthy survival that we made a way anyway. And now we're helping people, right? It would have been nice to have what we have now 14 years ago, but we still have made a way. We've gotten here. You're doing it and you've done it. And wow, you've overcome some crazy things. But now you're so full of this resilience and purpose that never would have come without the challenges that led you here. And now you're able to give back to the world. You're absolutely right. The world will be different because you're in it. Yeah. And that that's something that was said to me once is that the world will be different and, and you get to choose what that difference is. And that's, that, that was quite the convicting moment when I went, Oh yeah, well, what is that going to look like? And, and I had to build that, that idea in my head first before I can build that idea in the world. And and now I have that idea to build, to, to bring into the world. And that's, that's part of what I'm going to do because Otherwise, I'm kind of wasting a lot of this pain, and I don't like to waste yes. pain. I, I survived the pain. I don't want to waste it. Yeah. And that's why I work with story. Um, what I do now is I'm definitely a foster adopt advocate, um, but my primary mode of support right now is helping people tell their stories. So for some, that is to get their stories into a book, like I did, to help other people in a broader way. For some, it's to get on a stage also like I did, um, to get a message out that way. But, but there's so like when I talk just a little bit about our brain stems and where trauma happens, um, one of the ways of touching that trauma and moving it isn't talk therapy. It's the wrong part of the brain. It's any kind of expressive art. It's anything that allows our sensory experience to be uncensored. And so horses, that's why, because there's an experience with another creature that doesn't need words. The body gets to just experience this other life and it's beautiful and powerful and that's why it's working. Um, Dance, music, fine arts, and storytelling. Storytelling is one of them. All of those things address a part of our brain that's really kind of nonverbal but needs to get out anyway. And so when we're willing to put words down, when we're willing to put paint down, when we're willing to ride that horse and feel it with our sensory bodies, we're doing such important work. And so... That's why I specifically have chosen story because I've lived and breathed it for so long and helping people heal through the hard parts of their story so that not only are they healing from it, but when it's ready to go out into the world, they're getting to offer healing to others as well. You know, I love that you mentioned the creativity part because I actually um, was on a call this morning with with a handful of guys and a couple of them said, I, I'm not just not a very creative person. I'm like, whoa, 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 hang on. Let me stop you right there. Because let me tell you, I always said the same thing about me. And then when my older boys became teenagers, I needed to hit something occasionally. And because they would make me insane. And I went, and I figured it wasn't healthy to hit them, obviously. So um, I was watching a YouTube channel or two or, or so and, and thought, you know what? I'm a, I want to learn how to make a knife because that looked cool to do, right? And so I went out and found me a couple little, you know, uh, Craigslist finds and got a little forge and got some metal and got a small anvil and started playing around with that. And, and then one day I, I decided I wanted to make, I wanted to figure out how to make a rose out of, out of metal. And I spent hours figuring out how to do this right. And and now I put one out and show it to you, but I tried to get it out earlier and, and the drawer is hung up on something, so I can't pull it out. But I have this beautiful steel rose. I actually have a whole bucket of them down in my garage that I've, I put together because it, it was such a project that I got into so deeply. And and I went, man, this is just amazing that you can take this scrap metal and, and turn it into something so amazing and beautiful. And you spend the time creating something that looks so lifelike, but it's, you know, it's, it's a steel rose. It's a forever rose, if you will. You know, it's, it's this thing that it's this thing of beauty that came out of nothingness and on that whole journey. And I don't talk about this in the podcast a whole lot. You know, it's, it's, it's really just been one of my hobbies, but, um, I, I created a YouTube video on how to make them once. And I mean, this is just a hillbilly wearing bib overalls in his little bitty tiny garage out in the middle of nowhere, you know, just trying to, bang on metal for a while and i created this little video just to show people how it was made which created like a i think last i saw it, i haven't looked at it in a while it was somewhere just north of one hundred and fifty thousand views 
How many people are going to watch a 26 minute long video with, with this guy over there banging on metal? Apparently quite a few. It caught the attention of some other people apparently. And then I got a phone call and I was invited to be on the, t the TV show forged in fire. And I've managed to, to be on, I've gotten invited back. I've been on that show a couple times now. And it's all the stuff that came out of this, this moment where I was just willing to go try and do something. And honestly, when, when my body is agreeing with me and I can get out to the forge and it's one of the healthiest things I can do to go, yep. go take some sort of random piece of metal I found somewhere and throw in a bucket and have it at the house and decide to turn into something. And it may turn into something beautiful. It may turn into a pile of, of more scrap. That's just a lesson and that's not <laughs> the way to do it. But at the end of the day, it's, it's about that creating, finding that thing that you can create the place where you can, you can create beauty in the world even if it doesn't look like the, the way that people will conditionally consider, you know, conditionally is not the word I was shooting for there. Traditionally, the people that would traditionally consider beautiful. And here's the thing about that is that is such a therapeutic work and you didn't have to know it. You don't even really need to understand what your brain is doing with it, but you are tapping into the part of your brain where unprocessed traumatic things get stored and it's working itself out and it's allowing it to kind of dislodge and begin to categorize into the brain in appropriate places. There's definitely a time and place for talking. I don't mean to say that's never useful, but as a starting point, it's housed in a part of our brain that is nonverbal. And so when you go out there and you just allow your body to express itself uncensored, you're just doing it. That is such a therapeutic work. And again, what I want to say to everyone here, like if you're all thinking, man, I wish I'd known all of this yesterday, years and years ago, like your resilience is equipped and has gotten you here. You don't even have to understand some of these things to know that you've had at your disposal such good, healthy work. Now, conversations like this can actually inform it and build on it. And you can just get stronger and healthier. And Jason, I'm hearing that too from you. Like, man, I started with whiskey. Then I, I found that wasn't actually that helpful or that supportive. And I just kept adding to my toolbox of different healthier ways that I could address life. And you don't have a therapist sitting there with you saying, let's talk about it. What, tell me what this rose means. Tell me what this scrap that ended up looking like scrap means. Like you're in your head and you're in your head with your own thoughts, but also your body's just doing it. And, it. and it can be metal that you're turning into something. For those of you who are like, no, I still just don't want to make stuff. Go walk in nature. It allows your sensory body to be present and grounded with the world around you. You're hearing the birds. You're getting the fresh air. You're seeing the trees. Even that, getting out and moving your body can be such a healthy, supportive way. And so there's really something for everybody, <laughs> you know. There, there doesn't need to be any excuses like I'm not a painter. Uh, don't Then don't be a painter, but find the thing that works for you that while you're doing it, you're feeling restored. You're feeling a level of peace. You're feeling a level of like, okay, I can step into the minute after this a little more resourced than the one I came into this one with. And, and just lean into how you've been uniquely wired and be open to healing looking different than, again, than the world might say. You know, again, there's a time and place for talk therapy, but it doesn't start there. That really comes much later in the healing journey when that nonverbal stuff has worked out enough that it can become verbal. But we start there and then we wonder why we're in therapy for years and years. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, no offense against uh, Dr. Tom, because he's the genius in my life that, that helps Amanda and I work through a lot of this stuff. But you're right. This all started a long time before that, before yeah. I, yes. I, I had the, yes. the bandwidth to, to put that in, yep. into words. Yep. Absolutely. Well, Marcy, I want to thank you so much for coming on here today and talking to me and spending some time here telling the world about your story and what you've learned and and all the work you've put into this whole project you have with lots of books and, and, and just a heart for helping kids and other parents as we walk through this. Thank you. Thanks so much. And again, thanks for you being open and vulnerable. You talked about the power of it, but you also modeled it and shared some of your own journey. And I really appreciate that. Thank you. Well. If anybody ever wants to to listen to vulnerable, I, I've learned that <laughs> I've learned that the only thing I can do is tell is to tell my truth out in the world, and yeah. and yeah. that that will make the difference for me and maybe somebody else. But you know, I I become addicted to yeah. just being honest and letting everybody yes. see my ugly face because well, that's the one I've got. <laughs> God did not give me Leonardo DiCaprio's face for some reason, so I'm just I'm certain there's some other guy in in 
popular culture who's supposed to be handsome now, but I'm, I'm disconnected <laughs> from popular culture, so I don't know, <laughs> but he gave me what I have and, and I'm just, this is just me. And that's, that's who the world has to deal with. So yeah, that's, that's, that's what I have. And that's what I give to the world. And if they don't like it, they won't take it. And that's okay too, because, because I've connected with enough people to know, um, like I mentioned before, a hundred years from now, it's going to be different. I'm just busy shaping what that looks like. Love it. Okay. Foster care nation. Thank you for listening to Marcy's story. Now take her knowledge and wisdom to heart so you can create love and healing in your family and community. Be sure to come back next week. We have new episodes every Tuesday. If you'd like to share your story as a guest, you can reach us at Jason at fostercarenation.com. You can connect with other like-minded people on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash fostercareuj. Don't forget, we have a Patreon account where you can support our mission for as little as $5 a month. It's at patreon.com slash fostercarenation. We also have an account at Buy Me a Coffee. It's like a virtual tip jar where you can fund our mission for as little or as much as you want. It's at buymeacoffee.com slash fostercare. The links to everything are in the show notes in your podcast player or at fostercarenation.com. And as always, you are so super awesome. I thank you guys. Oh, cool, cool, cool. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for listening. Thanks, thanks, thanks. Unparalleled <laughs> Studios. Studios. <laughs>